You can be seated, and if you had your Bibles open uh, to Psalm 51, you can keep them there. If you didn't have them open, that's where we'll be today as we continue um, our study in uh, the Psalms for uh, the summer. And I say this routinely, I'm not smart enough to plan this stuff out, but what a beautiful psalm as we think about celebrating freedom uh, tomorrow that we enjoy as a country, uh, that today we would gather and celebrate uh, freedom from our sins that's found through Jesus alone. And so that's what we'll walk through today uh, with Psalm 51. Um, if you need, we have a couple Bibles up here. Uh, there's some coffee up here that you're free to help yourself to, uh, and the restrooms are around the corner if you need those this morning. It has been said so often and attributed to so many different people that it is hard to know where the saying originated. However, we have all heard at some time or another, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I would like to amend that today for us in the church and say it like this. Be kind and pay attention for everyone you meet is trying in some way to atone for their sins. Everyone has this inclination, whether it's unaddressed or suppressed, that not only is something wrong in the world that they live in, but there is also something wrong within themselves. The questions then become, where does sin or wrongdoing come from? Who will provide deliverance or salvation from said sins? And what must be done to receive forgiveness? Everyone you meet, no matter how far away they may push any type of organized religion, everyone is asking themselves internally in some level, whether it's in their own life or what they see around them, what went wrong, how do we fix it, and how do I receive the help that I need? Everybody's asking that question in some way or another. And today, as we unpack Psalm 51, David lays out for us the truth regarding sin, <laughs> salvation, and forgiveness. The psalm serves as a trustworthy companion and guide to bring us back to God time and time again as we are as we confront and are confronted by our sins daily. Psalm 51 is something that should be routinely repeated in our lives as we realize our need for the truth of the gospel first and foremost. And as we realize our need for the gospel, we then become effective in sharing it. N.T. Wright offers this warning. The church is never more in danger than when it sees itself simply as the solution bearer and forgets that every day it too must say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and allow that confession to work its way into genuine humility, even as it stands boldly before the world and its crazy empires. By faithfully and humbly applying the message of Psalm 51 to ourselves first, we are then in a position to joyfully and courageously share the good news of the gospel with others because we have been reminded over and over again of the goodness of the grace we have found in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that Psalm 51, written by David after he's confronted in his sin, serves as a reminder for us of what confession and repentance looks like. It serves as a reminder of the truth of forgiveness you stand ready to offer. And so, God, before this is a message the world needs to hear, it's a message that we have to work deep into our own hearts. To be aware of our own need for your mercy to wash over us every day. To be aware of our own need for the forgiveness of our sins that continue to haunt and to plague us in this life. But, God, as we rehearse, as we repeat, as we are reminded of the truths of the gospel every day, it makes our heart tender towards those who don't yet know you. 
makes us desire, should make us desire to see them be brought into the family. So that our lips would be open, as David says in the latter half of Psalm 51, that our lips would be open not only to praise you, but to instruct sinners in your way. God, would the truth of Psalm 51 today not only remind us and bring us assurance of the freedom we have in Christ, but would it make us look outside of ourselves to go, who in our lives needs to hear that they have been forgiven, if they will turn and confess and repent? God, make us bold witnesses for the gospel in our life, both in our words and in our actions, with those who do not yet know you. And may we be faithful and have integrity with our words and with our actions so that we could also encourage our brothers and sisters in the faith, in their weakness and in their struggles, that the gospel is still true for them, that you've redeemed, you're renewing, you're restoring them. God, help us to put all these things, bring all these things to mind, have the truth applied to our heart, that we would go out and live accordingly. In Christ's name. Amen. David writes in Psalm 51, 1 through 4, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We know if you have the little subheading under Psalm 51's title, or if you've ever read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, that this psalm is written in response to Nathan confronting David over his rape of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Thus, King David opens without any pretense or vague avoidance of the reality of his sin that is staring him in the face. But notice what David doesn't do. David doesn't wallow in his sin. But he appeals to the God who called him and anointed him to continue to be the God he has always been. He appeals to the character of God as the basis for the forgiveness he seeks. As such, we would do well to remember that the beginning of asking for forgiveness ourselves depends not on our past goodness or our promised goodness going forward. Our forgiveness is always tied to the character of God, who is merciful and loving. These truths about God's character were part of how God chose to disclose himself to Moses. And Moses records it for us in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Moses is asked to see God, and God says, I will pass by you, but you will not see me from the front. After I pass by, I will let you see me from behind. And as the Lord passes by, this is what Moses records, the Lord passed before him, and the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This wasn't Moses' imagination. Moses was dreaming up the best case scenario for who God would be. This is God's self-disclosure of who he is. This isn't, well, man, I really hope this will be true someday. God tells Moses and us, this is who I am. I am a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he's also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice and of mercy and of grace and of love and of forgiveness. So after David appeals to the character of God for the forgiveness he seeks, David lays out the totality of his sin and its effects in both his relationship with God and others. 
He refers to his specific actions as sins, transgressions, and iniquity. Each of these terms help lay out the full scope of what our sins actually do. The first way he refers to his actions against Bathsheba and Uriah is sin. Now we have all heard and understood sin as missing the mark. When we sin, we have directly offended God and in the process alienated ourselves from him. Sin, but, but there's also the reality that sin can be committed against other people. And then he refers to it as iniquity. Iniquity is a close synonym of sin, and the NIV, NIV Study Bible says that iniquity can also refer to guilt emanating or radiating out from that sin. Its basic meaning denotes something that is bent, twisted, or bowed down. In other words, iniquity twists the course of life away from God's standards. David says, I've sinned, and in the iniquity, it is beginning to twist my life, not to walk closer to God, but to deviate further from God's standards. And lastly, he refers to his actions as transgression. This is another close relative of sin and iniquity, but it has a nuance that regards rebellions and crimes, thus highlighting the breaking of relationship that happens between the sinner and God and man. So you can sin against God and against others. Iniquity begins to bend and twist your way of life away from God's standards. And transgression fully severs and breaks relationships between the sinner and God and the sinner and man. David says, I've witnessed all of this as the fallout of my sin. Notice that sin is something personal that David did. But the ramifications are not ever just for a single person. The ripple effects of our sin go out and affect and change and alter lives. David says there's a fullness of the sin that I'm aware of that I'm appealing to God for forgiveness from. David lives every day with the visible effects of his sin ever before him. He has seen the toll of his actions in the bereavement of Bathsheba, over the loss of her innocence, the loss of her husband, and the loss of her unborn child. And David has wrestled with his own grief over the loss of his child. David didn't just commit the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and then move on. There were daily, weekly reminders that his sin had had profound effects. But notice what David says. David acknowledges That while his sin had real tangible ramifications in other lives and that he did in fact sin against others, his first and primary sin was the rejection of God. When we reject God and his commands, we open the way for all sorts of evil to be done to others. Therefore, David confesses that whatever the punishment may be that God hands down, God will be justified in his actions. As the ESV Study Bible notes, the psalm freely acknowledges that the sin is the worshiper's own and that God is free from all blame. Indeed, God would be fully justified in refusing the request for mercy and bringing judgment instead. David has opened himself up and appealed to God's character for forgiveness, but at the end of verse 4, he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David doesn't have the assurance yet that he's going to be forgiven. He's appealed to and asked for forgiveness. But David holds open the reality and the possibility 
that God's not on the hook to grant it to him because he asked for it. He's appealing to God to say, God, would you do this? But whatever you decide, decide to do, because you are abounding in love, because you are steadfast with your grace and your mercy, but because you're a God of justice, whatever you decide to do is going to be the right thing. That's a humbling place to put yourself. But if you're going to put yourself there, last week we talked about the need for specific prayers when we need help for specific things. Vague prayers do us no good. And it's the same when we are confessing our sins. Vague confession of sin brings no sense of relief of forgiveness. Vague wandering around or tiptoeing around the issues of the sins we've committed against God and against others doesn't do much to warm our hearts to the reality of the truth of the gospel. Brennan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel says it this way, Many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe we've been forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. Manning is on to the counter-reality of what David writes for us in Psalm 51. There's nothing we gain by pretending to be sinners. The only thing we stand to gain by pretending to be sinners is a pretend forgiveness that never really touches our heart in a way that would turn us away from our sin. And oftentimes in my own life what i found are the sins that dog me the most are the ones I believe aren't really sins that I struggle with. But when there's honest confession, this is what I've done. This is the ramifications of the sins I've committed. When we are honest and specific and direct in our asking for forgiveness, we have the chance to experience the actual forgiveness God stands ready to offer for those sins we commit. But vague confession and vague repentance offers us no hope, no security, no joy in our salvation. So the call in the first four verses for us is, will we be honest with ourselves and our sin? David goes on and writes in Psalm 51, 5 through 12. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David, in verses 5 and 6, reiterates his personal responsibility for his sins. There is no blame shifting. There is no scapegoating. There is no excuse making. He doesn't complain about the environment he was raised in or the practices of others during his day. David owns the sin is his. Derek Kidner notes, this crime David now sees was no freak event. It was in character, an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprang from. Thus, being born in sin and unable to please the Lord from birth, David is aware of his need to plead for the miraculous work of God in his life. When we become aware of our sins, 
we become aware of what we're doing that is sinful, we eventually have to make the journey that David made from what we see outside to what it reflects about the reality in us. That sin is not something we do, but if we are not in Christ, sinning is who, sinner is who we are. It's where our hearts are bent. It's what we pursue. It's what we are after every day because we have inherited sin from our first parents who sinned in the garden. And from then until now, the curse of Adam has been handed down to everyone ever born save one person. And so David says, look, this is on me. From the beginning, I've been wired this way. And now I see the full reality of it. If you go back and you read the story of David, this is really the first time he's been confronted in sin in his life. Every other example before now that we have of David is one who follows God in righteous obedience, who lives according to the commands and laws of God, who in his following of the law is proved himself to be righteous. And now he's confronted with it. And now he walks back and he goes, oh, this is not just something I did. This is who I am. I need to be restored and redeemed and forgiven. Psalm 51, 7 through 9 shows a heart and a life desperate for God to do what only God can do, which is forgive and restore a person without destroying them. David appeals to the purification rituals of the law, but David goes deeper than external cleansing to ask for the inner cleansing to which these rites pointed. He desires ears to hear, not the echoing chorus of condemnation, but the resounding shouts of joy and gladness that comes from someone who realizes they have received mercy when they are least deserving. What's more, David asks for the blotting out of his iniquities. He not only has the courage and faith to ask God for forgiveness, he asks him to blot out his iniquities. That is, to render them obscure or inconsequential, to wipe out or destroy them. The only agent potent enough to remove the stains of our sin and make us white as snow is forever and only the blood of Jesus, of whom John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John doesn't say, behold the Lamb of God who buries the sin of the world until he needs to bring it back up to rub it in your face. He takes away the fullness of what David is praying for here is realized in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The one who would live the perfect life that we couldn't live would die to death in our place and in shedding his blood offer the only blood potent enough and powerful enough to offer us true, real forgiveness. Not just external cleansing, but an internal cleansing that changes the whole course and nature of who we are. When we come to Christ, we are no longer defined as sinner. We are defined as son or daughter. The primary motivator and mover in our life is no longer sin, but sanctification and an ever-growing love for Jesus. David says, I need this. I need something that not only removes the guilt of my sin, yes, but I need something that removes the inner stain of my sin that continues to warp and malign everything that I do. David gives voice to this in Psalm 51.10. When he asks God to do in his life what only God can do, and that is create in me a clean heart, O God. 
Derek Kinder says, with the word create, he asked for nothing less than a miracle. It is a term for what God alone can do, and it can refer to a sustained process as well as an instantaneous act. And here it seems to point to an instantaneous act. Pause here for a moment and wrestle with and let this truth settle in on you. No matter how bland or boring you may perceive your testimony of faith to be, the fact that you have a clean heart created in you is a miracle of God at work in your life. We were all born dead in our sins, unable to please God, unable to pursue God the way that we should. No matter how boring or how great your testimony may be, the reality is anyone who has a clean heart created in them has experienced the miraculous work of God in their life. You are a walking miracle if you have faith in Jesus. There's no other way around it because you cannot do the heart surgery on yourself that's required to have a clean heart. It only comes by the work of God. And David asked for the new heart and a renewed spirit so that he is not cast out of God's presence. And he also doesn't want to suffer the removal of God's spirit in his life the way King Saul did in 1 Samuel 16 14. David has this burden and desire to be in the presence of God, even as he's wrestling with the reality of his sin and the truth of his sin and the effects of his sin. David at no point in this psalm diminishes the reality of his sin, but it doesn't over, the presence of sin in his life does not overwhelm his desire to be with God. And then in Psalm 51, 11, and 12, David reminds himself and others that the only hope for living the way he desires is not found in redoubling his effort or promising to never sin again. To live the way he desires is only possible if God holds us up and gives us a willing spirit. David, in the first 12 verses of Psalm 51, lays out a master class in how we deal with sin. We own it. We confess it, we don't hide from it, we don't run from it. When we recognize it and acknowledge it, we appeal to the character of the God we love and we trust. We acknowledge and confess our sin before him, trusting that he will hear and respond out of an overflow of his steadfast love and abounding grace and mercy. And we ask God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Give us a clean heart and bring us back into his presence. And restore to us a joy in our salvation. But the issue for us, the question we have to ask, taking these first 12 verses into consideration, not only do we not want to be those who pretend to be sinners, we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we really want to be saved from our sin? Not that we know we should be pursuing that, not that we've heard that it was a good idea from our grandparents or our parents. The question before us is this. Do we really want to be saved from our sin? Francis Chan writes, Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. If the only thing we're after in confession and repentance is to no longer feel guilty about our sin, the ongoing cycle of sin and sin and sin and sin 
and sin and sin will just speed up. Because the removal of guilt is not what prompts us to want to walk away from our sin. The removal of guilt, if that's all we're after, creates in us this idea, I can do it again next time, and then the feeling of guilt will go away. What David is writing to do here is to stop all of us from presuming on God's grace. To not just pray for forgiveness of sin so that the feeling of guilt would go away, but to pray for the forgiveness of sin so that everything in us would be turned around and we would have a true desire for God again. Every sin, every time we sin, it deadens our taste for the things of God. And David says, take the guilt away. Not only take the guilt away, do whatever you've got to do, God, to re renew my heart and restore the joy of my salvation. Give me the ability and the strength that only you can give to follow after you. So the question for us is, do we really want to be saved? Not just from the penalty, but from the power and the presence of sin in our life. Now that isn't to say that we will go on, if we make this our effort and our aim, that we will never struggle with sin again. I'm not expecting you to go out and starting tomorrow, you've got the rest of the day to sin, get it out of your system. And if you start praying Psalm 51 every day, oh man, look at this, I'm perfect now. But I want to challenge you with this. There are two things that should mark the life of a maturing believer. One, honest confession and a deeper awareness of the lingering effects and power of sin in our life. Two, as the Spirit works in us, to redeem us and to sanctify us regarding what I would say are the pet sins in our life. We've all got them. There should be longer distances. There should be longer times where the taste of that sin diminishes and the taste of the goodness of the joy of the salvation God has given you increases. We aren't called to muddle along in mediocrity as we follow Jesus. And as we grow, we become more aware and more pronounced awareness of the sin in our life. But we also see the Spirit begin to give us the strength and the power to live in victory over sin in our life. And then David closes the psalm in 13 through 19 by writing, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David moves forward from verse 12 into the closing part of the psalm in faith that everything he has asked for in his prayer in verse 7 through 12 will be granted. And what is his response? First, David says in verse 13 that he will be the one to instruct others in how they are to deal with their sins so they are returned to rather than removed from God's presence. When we have had the joy of our salvation really restored, 
We become tireless witnesses to the truth of the gospel that, yes, it is possible to have your sins forgiven. Yes, it is possible to have them blotted out. Yes, it is possible to be welcomed back into fellowship with God, with the God who created you, loves you, and has redeemed you out of an overflow of his mercy and steadfast love. What David is saying, in essence, is my redemption will not be wasted. Not only will David disciple others, but he will give himself to worshiping the God of the covenant. Discipleship and worship are two of the main hallmarks of those who have been redeemed. David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When David says that, what David does is David removes himself as the hero of his story. If David's going to do what he says he's going to do, then David has to own that he is the sinner who committed these sins. If we're going to faithfully share the gospel, not only to encourage other believers, but to encourage and appeal to those who don't yet know Jesus to at least consider the claims and the offer of forgiveness, we have to be willing to move ourselves out of being the hero of our salvation story and say, I want you to understand what God has freed me from. I want you to understand how deep the sin in my life goes and how deep the forgiveness has ran in my own life. This is the king of the nation saying, I will now open my lips to praise you and to worship you, but also to give a full account for how in my sins and in the depth of my depravity, you met me and you redeemed me. David then closes out Psalm 51 with two pertinent reminders to himself and his readers. David begins with a reminder that true forgiveness and heart change delivers us from the rote religious repetition that on the outside looks good, but inwardly leaves the heart untouched. David springboards from saying that he will be one who shares and worships to saying, I'm not going to be one who gets caught in this rote religious repetition that looks good to others but leaves my heart untouched. Using the Old Testament sacrifices, David draws a sharp relief between insincere and sincere worship. David says essentially in verses 16 and 17, if I were to just go through the process of offering the sacrifices that are due, it would, be, it would do me no good. I can go through all the processes. I can go through all the motions. And it does me no good to go through the motions if my heart is not touched and changed by the grace and the mercy of God. As the NIB study Bible notes, here David refers to insincere sacrifice without a proper heart attitude. No sacrifice on its own was sufficient for forgiveness. Sacrifice had to be accompanied by a repentant heart. Therefore, we must be people marked by broken spirits and contrite hearts. That is, hearts that have been affected by our guilt so that when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we do so in a way that is acceptable to God. We have to be people whose hearts are actually broken, not over the guilt of our sin, but over the fact that we still sin. This comes back to that desire to be free from our sin. A broken and contrite heart and a broken spirit are always present in someone who is dealing honestly with their sins. And it creates an avenue by which we go back to God with humility, saying, I know I don't deserve, but because of your great love and mercy, I'm trusting you to give yet again forgiveness. 
but it also cuts deep channels of empathy to share with non-believers and believers caught in sin the truth of what it takes to be welcomed into and experience the forgiveness that God offers. You do not strut into the high court of heaven demanding forgiveness as if you deserve it. You go in humbly acknowledging that God had no right to redeem you in the first place, but he's done it. He's forgiven, he's restored, he's redeemed in the finished work of Christ. And so we go appealing to that character saying, your justice has been satisfied in Christ. Now I'm coming again, humbly asking you for forgiveness. We go humbly asking. Second, in Psalm 51, 18 and 19, we are reminded that we are all connected relationally as God's people, and thus we all contribute to the health or sickness of God's people gathered together. David says, do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. We're not in Zion. So what do we, when we pray for, when we follow David's promise, when we pray, do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem, we step back and we go, this means that we all bear responsibility for the overall health or sickness of the local church we belong to. That we're all in this together. What has been a highly personal psalm now gives way to the reality of community in which the people of God, the true Israel, the church, flourish. As the ESV Study Bible summarizes, each member is linked to all the others in a web of relationships. And together they share in the life of God as it pulses through the whole body. The ideal Israel is a community of forgiven penitents, faithfully embracing God's covenant and worshiping him according to the rites he appointed. This is the community that can bring light to the whole world. What David was praying for in 18 is the same thing we should be praying for, that God would knit us together, that we would pursue our health collectively as a body of believers, that we would practice the rites of repentance and confession, and we would receive his forgiveness. And in doing that together as a community, we will become a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden, a testimony to the goodness and the grace of God at work in a collective group of people who would otherwise not be gathered together if it weren't for the fact that they were all gathered under the name of the Lord Jesus who had saved and redeemed them. This is why we get together every Sunday. It's to catch up on life through the week, but it's also to look to our left and to our right and to go, I'm worshiping with brothers and sisters who I want to see in health flourish as the believers that God has called them to be. That's why we want you to be in small groups. That's why we want you to be in discipleship. That's why we want you to be giving your life to pursuing God alongside the people that you gather with in church. Because if we're going to take all the personal aspects of Psalm 51 and faithfully apply them over the course of our life. We do not do that by running away from community. We do that by running to community. By living vulnerable, faithful lives that confess and repent of our sins alongside other fellow believers so that we could be reminded, even when we struggle to believe, that God will forgive and restore us. There is a relief in the realization that the mercy and grace of God can overwhelm the greatest of our sins. And that is what Psalm 51 helps us see. I would dare say most of us in here will probably not fall into a place, maybe, but I hope not, where we need to see God forgive us for murder. 
And so we take something like Psalm 51 and we go, man, this is really good if I ever get stuck in a really big sin. Like this is where I'm, I'm going to go to Psalm 51 when I'm getting ready to go before the judge to get my sentence. But while David writes it in response to being confronted by Nathan, it's meant not only for the big sins. It's meant for all the little, what we would deem minor sins that plague and haunt us and continue to nip at our heels as we try to walk forward in following Jesus. This psalm is meant to provide the confidence we need to trust in God's forgiveness for our smaller, lesser sins, the sins we often think we can self-atone for. We go, well, I would never try to cleanse myself of adultery or murder, but I can probably make up ground on lying. I can probably make up ground on gossip. I can probably make up my own ground on anger. Let me redouble my effort. Let me try a little harder. Let me prove to God that I've got this one. Psalm 51 says you don't got any of it. None. You cannot atone for yourself. Come to God with all of it. The same shed blood of Jesus that covered David in his adultery and his sin covers us in our anger and in our gossip and in our lying and in our cheating and in our cursing and in all the minor things that we think we have to atone for. David says, no, no, no. It's all covered in Jesus. Dane Ortland captures this well in his book, Gentle and Lowly, when he writes, we all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven, pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. Those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. That's the assurance that Psalm 51 brings to us today. If ever there was one who had sent his way out of God's tender care, it's David in this moment. And Psalm 51 stands against our own heart's accusations and the accusations of the enemy and says, no, no, no. You cannot send your way out of the tender care of God for you, who knows you to the uttermost, who loves you to the uttermost, and who has redeemed you to the uttermost. Big sins or small Christ will forgive them all if we believe and come to him. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning for the truth of Psalm 51, the truth that we can be forgiven, that we look around us and see the sins that we commit. We see the sinful effects going on in our world, and we are reminded in Psalm 51 that there's forgiveness. There's a way to be forgiven and restored and renewed, and it's by asking you to give us a clean heart. And he purchased our clean hearts. David looked forward to the day that he would be given a clean heart. We know that we have a clean heart because of the finished work of Jesus. David died in faith that that would happen. We live in faith that it has happened. And we look forward in faith to the day when our hearts are fully redeemed and restored and renewed. Until then, 
like Paul writes in Romans, we're going to struggle with the presence of sin in our lives. But if we're in Christ, sin is no longer the primary descriptor of who we are. We're sons, we're daughters, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're redeemed. Yes, we sin, but we are no longer sinners at the core of who we are. We're being changed, renewed, sanctified. There's a new heart in us, and the Spirit is making us willing and able to follow in obedience your commands for our life. So God, will we not hear the voice of accusation this morning, but will we hear the voice saying, come? Come and confess, not vaguely, but specifically. Come confess all the sins you have to me and find that I have abundant grace and steadfast love and overflowing mercy. Come to me today and consider the blood of my son that not only washes over you, but washes you in your inmost parts, blotting out your iniquities, making you clean. Come and consider Come and consider that I'm with you always, Jesus said, even to the end of the age. Come and consider, will we come and consider the truth of the gospel this morning? Will we live out the truth of the gospel? Would it not be something that we vaguely think is good for us? Would it be something we know and trust and give our whole lives to applying? That we've been forgiven, restored, and redeemed. This isn't a call to redouble our efforts. It's a call to redouble our focus and our gaze on Jesus and Jesus alone, in whom we find our salvation. In Christ's name, amen.